Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I'm excited to speak with Kristen Lafreniere, who owns and manages her own firm in Lubbock, Texas. In an age of increasing specialization and law firm size, Kristen's firm does it all. She does business law, civil litigation, business counseling, estate planning, probate, and civil appeals, and I'm sure a lot of other things as well. She's active on social media, discussing her life as a teeny law lawyer. And if that wasn't enough, Kristen's active in the State Bar of Texas, teaches courses in business law to college students, and coaches moot court teams. She started her law career as a briefing attorney for Justice Don Willett, then of the Supreme Court of Texas. She's a proud graduate of Lubbock Christian University, Go Chaps, and Texas Tech University School of Law, Go Red Raiders. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. So look, I want to start by asking about your path to the law. So can you just talk a little bit about sort of your early life and what ultimately made you decide to join this profession? Sure. I'm probably a a little bit boring in that way in that I'm the first lawyer in my family. So I didn't really have anyone around that I was able to point to and say, oh, I want to do, you know, what grandpa did or what my uncle did. Uh, So I was homeschooled almost all the way through, uh, graduated as a homeschool grad and went to LCU where I, I also teach now. And really just kind of, I don't know, I tell people I majored in like ADHD in that I I graduated with two majors, three minors and two specializations because I just could not decide what I wanted to do. Or or maybe it's better to say I really liked everything that I tried and mm-hmm. I couldn't decide. And so my my senior year, my my advisor sat me down and said, look, we really think you'd be good at law school. We want you to take the LSAT, like just see what happens. Um, did pretty well and, and applied and, and got some scholarships. And I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. That's hmm. what once I decided I was going to be a lawyer, I said, OK, that's great. I'm going to be a prosecutor like Matlock. It's going to be excellent. <laughs> and then I took my very first crim law class. I think it was probably the second or third class of the semester and realized, well, that's not going to work. I'm going to need to find something else. And hmm. so kind of dug into the civil and business side, got hooked into moot court and and that kind of made me fall in love with civil appeals and then that stuck. Yeah. Well, what what about criminal law was not that exciting to you as sort of an early 1L? I'm curious. I just wasn't very good at it. It wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't interesting. I really liked the procedure of it. I'm very much a procedure nerd. So the procedure of it was fine and I got decent grades. It wasn't that. It just was, I don't know. It just didn't seem like it clicked at all and the spark I thought would be there wasn't. Hmm. And then, you know, I took contracts and then I tried out for 1L moot court and I realized, oh, I really like this. Um, Can I do this for the rest of my life? And it turns out, yes, you can do that for the rest of your life. And so I just kind of kind of stuck with that. But, you know, my husband's a former DA as well. So I, I still kind of have a little bit of the criminal law kind of around where I learn a little bit more about it. But I don't do anything with criminal still. We don't do any criminal defense or anything with the firm either. Hmm. What I love about that is one of the things that I think people decide when they go to law school is like, I'm going all in, I'm going to law school, I want to be a fill in the blank. And it's often criminal law for the same reason that you point out, right? Like that's what's visible and visual because of pop culture and everything else. And some people have trouble like saying, well, that's what I want to do. That's 
my identity and therefore I can't switch. And what I loved about your answer is it was both focusing on the things that you sort of like naturally clicked with your skill set and also naturally clicked with your interest. And you, it sounds like you were open to that and it was probably a pretty good thing that you were. It probably helps, like I said, with my undergrad that I was willing mm. to be like, ooh, sociology. Oh, okay, maybe not sociology, maybe this over here. And I think I I didn't quite have as pinned down of, okay, this is my five-year plan and this is what we're going to do. So that probably helped. But yeah, thankfully, I didn't have quite as much of a, a burden of that. Everyone's expecting me to do X and I could just kind of figure out what I fell in love with. Yeah. And then before we sort of get to what you did after law school, I'm curious if growing up being homeschooled has had any effect on sort of your life and career as a lawyer? It definitely has. So I I do think one of the reasons I was able to do well in undergrad and law school is that at least for me, we were we were very rigorous. I mean, I'm I'm sure homeschooling gets a gets a bad rap a lot of the time and I understand that. But my sister and I, you know, my my sister is a pediatrician and NICU uh, doctor at Texas Children's in Houston. I think we did okay. I think we, you know, learned how to study and that's really what my my parents were very big on is you don't have to do well at everything but know how to study, learn how to learn. And so that's what I really loved at LCU and at Tech Laws. I really loved to learn. And so that helped it, I guess, not feel quite as overwhelming. I mean, I had as as many, you know, mental breakdowns as any other 1L, 2L, and 3L in law school, I'm sure. But sure. The, it wasn't because I didn't know how to learn or I didn't know how to figure out how to find the answers, even if I didn't know the answers. As a lawyer, it's helped a lot because I'm I'm back where I grew up, right? So I'm still back in this community where I grew up. A lot of other homeschool uh, folks that I grew up with stayed here as well. And so it's been a really kind of neat transition from being, hey, you were one of my sort of co-op homeschool parents and now you're my client. What do you know? So wow. it, it's been kind of, it's been a neat little client base that I wasn't expecting, but it's, it's fun to sort of realize a lot of us stuck around and, and we still do business together. That's fantastic. And you also mentioned that you found a lot of both professional learning and identity formation, but also joy in moot court. Talk to me a little bit about sort of moot court's role in your legal education and your early time as a lawyer. Well, we could talk about advocacy for hours. I am a, a huge advocacy nerd. Um, and I think you said in the in the intro, I still uh, help coach uh, mock trial and moot court teams, both for the law school and for local high school here. So I'm all I'm all about advocacy. It this is going to sound a little extreme, but I think it saved my life in law school. I mean, I think it really gave me that that spot, that team that I could know. Okay, well, if everything else is sort of falling apart, at least I've got moot court. At least I've got our advocacy program. Um, Texas Tech was really big in that, and you know we've we've won numerous like national awards for ABA top moot court program things like that. So. Advocacy was really stressed. If you wanted to do it, you could probably find a way to do it, even if you weren't mm. great at it. Um, I was really lucky to be on 10 teams while I was in law school, 10 traveling 10 teams, 10 wow. traveling teams. Um, we won seven of our 10 competitions. So it wow. was a lot of fun. I will say it's a lot of work and it's a lot more fun when you win, right? It probably would have been a lot less fun <laughs> if we didn't win as often as we did, but we had a really fun run. And I, I do think even just the sort of 1L, you know, intramural Bob competitions, um, it's probably the number one reason that in my Twitter presence that I got an internship with Judge Willett after my 1L year. So I interned with Justice Willett at the court uh, my 1L summer, and I'm pretty sure it's just because moot court just seemed really interesting. And then, man, if I wasn't already hooked in civil appellate law, um, interning at the Texas Supreme Court did that. 
And then I was I was really you know super blessed that Judge Willett asked me to come back as his uh, his clerk after graduation and was one of his last clerks before he moved to the fifth. So that was just that was incredible. And now I coach and get to travel and teach high schoolers and, and other law students. How nerdy and wonderful the court is. I love that. And I love the fact that you found something that that you got value from both intellectual and social and emotional and all of those things, but also something that helped you stand out, right? Like with my students, they're always asking, how can I get this great internship? How can I get this great first job? Because I haven't done any of those things. So like there's that, that first one is really hard to get. Sure. And at least in my experience, and it sounds like this happened to you, you just need to have something that's going to stand out to someone. And that's not going to stand out to everybody and everybody's going to be different. But the the one or two things that you can do that make your resume look 5% different than everybody else's sometimes is the difference. And it sounds like then Justice Willett was pretty excited about your moot court background as well. I think you just like that I have it a Twitter, which I'm now going to get a text ah. from him that's like, what? No, I did not hire you because you had a Twitter. But no, I mean, he, he's, of course, we miss him on Twitter, but he was so good to interact. And when I was just a law student, you know, he would, would talk to people, he would answer questions. And I loved that. And it kind of was a little bit of a toss up. Like, I have no idea if this would actually work. I'm going to try. And obviously, I think Having interned made clerkship probably easier in that obviously we'd work together and he kind of knew my skill set. But no, I mean, he he was wonderful and I loved working at the court. I miss it a lot. And um, I still, of course, practice there now since I do civil appellate. I do stuff at the court. I do stuff at the at the state uh, appellate courts. But it's a it's a really pretty special year and a half between interning and, and clerking in my life. That I'm really, really glad I had. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what the day-to-day life of a, at least Texas Supreme Court law clerk was like. One of the things that that I like to talk about is, you know, federal clerkships kind of get a lot of the talk, at least among a lot of top law students across the country. Sure. But state court clerkships are cool is what, uh, I, what several people have said. And I made some t-shirts that said exactly that. So I'm a big advocate for state court clerkships. Talk about what your state court clerkship was like. I know it was a couple of years ago, but not that long ago that you probably can't put yourself back in your shoes. No, I could close my eyes and, and be back in, in my office for sure. Also, I love those t-shirts. I have one of those t-shirts and I unironically wear it around like my moot court students because I want to remind them of this, right? That obviously yeah. federal clerkships are amazing. Um, but I agree with Judge Willett. I agree with Judge Dillard from Georgia that state court clerkships might actually get you more bang for your buck if you're not wanting to go to one of just the biggest law firms that really can offer you that kind of clerkship bonus. And if you're wanting to work in that state, it's actually going to be more beneficial to you. I think I'm biased because I didn't have a federal clerkship and I did have a state Supreme Court clerkship, but I, I know what it's done for me, even in just a very small a small firm and now a very tiny firm, teeny firm, if you will. But no, it was it was amazing. So Texas is pretty unique in that clerks get to go to conference with our state Supreme Court justices. So when they would have their conferences, we got to go too. We got to sit along the edges of the conference room, um, hear them decide, hear them vote, hear them argue. Um, if we, one of us, of course, most of the decisions had been parceled out to various clerks to kind of do the in-depth issue spotting and this is where we think there are problems or this is why we think you should grant or what have you. And so you were, you stood up and the chief justice would call on you to like present the case to everyone. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Which was really cool and terrifying, but mostly cool. 
And yeah, you got to just sort of present everything that you had learned and then you sat back down. They could ask you questions. They were very nice and, and rarely asked you questions you didn't know the answer to, which was good. But no, it was incredible. And obviously you you were assigned to one particular justice, so I had Justice Willett, but I also knew the other eight were available. Really, if I had any any questions, certainly professionally, but really got into have a wonderful friendship with several of them as well that continues now. Uh, so particularly Justice Willett is, is a family in that went to his kids' birthday parties and went to supper with them right. and went to lunch and, and still talked to him. Probably on, I would say, several times a month, Justice Willett or Judge Willett now, and I get to talk. And so it's it's pretty incredible how that relationship has continued um, from a mentorship and a friendship perspective. And then you just write opinions. You just write all day long. It's wonderful. You read everybody's briefs and you try to pull them down into, you know, sort of a little bit more bite-sized. Here's the good issues. Learn to recognize really good briefs and be, oh, thank goodness this person is on that side. At least I know I'm going to be able to understand their brief and some mm -hmm. not quite that good. And sometimes you have to work a little harder yep. to understand somebody else's brief and um, sure. then write opinions and work with the judge to to get them out. So Judge Willett was really good about letting us take the first shot lots of the time, even if it ended up really changing a lot. But getting to know his voice and start to kind of make those first drafts and work with him was just priceless. It made me a much better lawyer, too. I mean, it's I'm a much better writer. I think I was a decent writer before I went to the court, and I know I'm a much better writer now. Yeah, I mean, that was my experience also having in my clerkships was the opportunity to sort of like be a judge's brain for a period of time. Although I'm glad that the courts I clerked on, we didn't have to stand up and present in front of all the other judges uh, and other law clerks. If there's one sort of writing tip or change that you picked up in your time as a Supreme Court clerk that you kind of try to integrate into your writing now, what would that be? So I tell my clients this quite a bit, and it's not just with briefs, it's with a lot of the other things that I do. It's write in plain English. And um, that was a mantra in Justice Willett's uh, chambers, but not just his, really the court as well, especially Chief Justice Hecht, that's something that he tried. Can a regular person pick up your opinion? And yes, there will be jargon. Yes, there will be things about the law they may not understand, but basically how you write it, could they read it or is it just incomprehensible? And really the gear toward making, if we're not talking jargon, if we're not explaining procedure, but we're just talking about the law, is that accessible to just somebody randomly picking it up? And that really impacted me a lot because that's not, I feel like how we learned to write in law school, it, it was breaking a lot of probably some pretty bad habits. Um, but I see that a lot now. I do a lot of business law, and this is what I try to do even with my contracts. Or I'm starting an LLC. An article of incorporation doesn't need to be 37 pages long, probably. And at the very least, you need to be able to pick up a page and say, oh, I think I know what this means, right? Because I may not always be there, and my clients need to be able to go look at their contract and explain their contract to their supplier, and I'm, not, I'm never there. So it, it really has impacted how I think I, as a lawyer to a lot of my small business and larger business clients, try to make myself as unneeded as possible. So I could charge hmm. you three hours like to that. write a 30-page contract, and it's incomprehensible, so you come back to me. Or I could you know, charge you three hours, write a really good contract, and maybe you don't call me again for several months, but you're still, I've done a better job for you as a lawyer than to write you something that you don't understand, or to ask you to sign something that you don't understand. I love that. I mean, it's something that I think it, it, there's a fine balance, right? As a legal writing professor, this is something I think about a lot. 
And there's a fine balance between teaching people, teaching students the the way that lawyers communicate, the the organization that a legal reader expects. I joke with my students, and this is true, so I'm going to out myself here. My Peloton name is The Legal Reader because I'm constantly saying like, what would the legal reader expect here? Not me, Jonah Pearl and legal reader, but like the legal reader at large. At the same time, so many of my students come in and they try to throw in Latin and they have all these clauses. And I feel like it might've been originally translated from the German. Like it is, it is sometimes harder to write in simpler, clearer language, but I want people to write like they're humans, not like they think lawyers sound. And it sounds like that's something you picked up as well. Well, it's it's that old joke, right? Sorry, this letter is so long, I was short on time, right? Yes. It, in a lot of ways, it is harder to write shorter, to write more clear, to get rid of things that aren't necessary. But it's better for the client, ultimately. Um, it's better for a writer. And if you're writing a brief, at least from my end on state, you know, Supreme Court, state appellate issues, I know judges would rather read a really well-written 10-page motion for summary judgment versus a kitchen sink 40 page motion for summary judgment. Absolutely. Doesn't mean I'll win. I mean, it honestly might. It honestly might mean that they actually stop and read my motion. I might actually win versus just, oh, this is too much. There's probably a fact issue, no summary judgment and on it goes. Right. So I I do think it's best for the client. I think judges appreciate it too. And I think they tell us this. I mean, when you look at at the research uh, above the law and everyone else is doing, judges consistently are telling us make your things more readable so that we can read them so that we can make better decisions. We have to listen to that. Right. And once you've learned sort of those basics, once you've learned sort of where the rule statement goes in the analysis and where people expect it, then the next step is to sort of like make it clearer, simpler, often shorter. One of the things that I noticed in big law practice was people tended to write to the word limit. They kind of saw the word limit as a minimum and not a maximum. And I have learned that some of the best writers out there, and some of them are big law firms, but some of them are in law clinics and some of them are solo practitioners, often turn in briefs that are significantly below the word limit as a way of saying, like, I'm done speaking, I'm not wasting your time. Right. No, I think it can be a really effective advocacy tool of, actually, this is a simple Mm -hmm. issue. Let me explain it to you in 10 pages. Um, it It can be pretty effective. 100%. So right after your clerkship, I think if I get the chronology right, you spent some time sort of at a midsize or not as small law firm as the one you work in now, but pretty quickly, quickly, you decided to sort of go out on your own. Talk to me about what that process was like, what you were thinking, why you decided to make that, make that decision fairly early in your career. You know, it's surprising now when I look at it, cause it's so obviously the right call for, for, for me and my family now. But at the time, of course, it was a pretty terrifying jump off of a cliff. But uh, yeah, it was a, a mid-sized law firm for Lubbock, which anywhere else would be a very small law firm. But for Lubbock, you know, it was a decent sized, multiple attorneys. And, you know, there were reasons to leave that didn't have to do with starting my own law firm. But really, it was a huge combination of just COVID and a lot of work from home. Um, I had just gotten married to my husband, who's also a lawyer and now with the firm. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot going on in our life. And David and I, my husband, are both pretty business-minded financially and just from a business planning and sort of realized that between working from home and COVID and all of that uncertainty, we could probably be making very similar to the same amount, um, working quite a bit less, picking our own clients and just be overall have a much better lifestyle and 
be a lot happier than we currently were. Um, David at the time was also at that firm. And so that's that's where we met was at that firm. And so David left and went to the Lubbock DA's office and I left and started a firm and David has since come and now we practice together. Uh, but yeah, the, the thought process really was a little bit financial, a lot of, I think we could be happier and also, I think we can do this. We're two smart people. I think I think we can do it. And if the absolute worst happens, you know what's great? We both have law degrees. Uh, we both have law licenses. We can go figure something else out if this doesn't work. And and thankfully, it did work and it has done really well. So that's that's exciting. Is kind of like what I was saying with moot court. It's a lot more fun when it works, but <laughs> thankfully, it did work. So it it was a jump off a cliff, but it hmm. it turned out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, one of the cool parts about that story also is I loved hearing your the sort of mental models you used as you were thinking about it, right? You're kind of like a lot of people I think are trying to say, is this the right choice? Like capital T, capital R, capital C, the right choice. And instead, your mental model was, I think we can do it. And the downside risk is relatively low. And tell me about like once you made the decision what was it like to actually start? Like if I had been sort of like sitting and watching those first couple of months, like what are the kinds, what are the memories that you have of that experience? What are some of the, the takeaways? What are some of the things that maybe didn't work so well? Like how did that all, how did that all play out? The anatomy of starting your own law firm, right? Um, so we we were pretty sure we were going to to leave a little bit before we did, but obviously wanted to get some of our current clients that weren't going to come with us through some litigation issues. And so there's a little bit of pre-planning. I mean, there's a lot of, for lack of just mm -hmm. a super boring word, budgeting, figuring out, okay, how much is Lexus going to cost? I'd love Westlaw, but that's not going to happen because they want my firstborn child. So Lexus it is. Okay, Clio, can we get a new Clio? Yes, we can. Um, how much is it going to cost, you know, for an office? Can we find an office? Um, let's start a business entity that's, you know, an LLC for the law firm. All of that was kind of precursor. Um, then we left the law firm uh, Friday night, and I was officially open wow. for business Saturday morning. Um, had an email address, all of that jazz. And then it really was just reaching out to clients. I was very fortunate. Um, all but one of my clients came with me. And so obviously had a, a book of business, which was part of the figuring out point too. you know, obviously it would have been different calculus if I hadn't had a book of business. I knew that I did. I knew that I had people who would come with me and that was obviously made that jump a little bit less scary because I knew I had someone who would pay a bill at some point in the next few months. But I, I will say this, one of the, the firm that we had worked at was very transparent in just how the law firm worked. Like how does invoicing work? How does billing work? I had an awful lot of client facing time. And so it wasn't quite as a mystery of me trying to figure out how to send an invoice. I had done that already. Um, and yeah, here's my plug for Clio. It's amazing and saves my life. And their, uh, their customer service, hey, I don't know how to do this. And they just pop up and explain, oh, fix this with your matter number and on it goes um, was pretty great. And then, yeah, I just started networking a ton. I mean, in, anybody who has started their own firm knows this. If you do have a book of business that usually have very little budget for advertising, so you got to go figure out some way to, to network and tell people you're there. Um, I started speaking at a bunch of sort of local, smaller groups of business people and saying, hey, do y'all have wills? Do you need LLCs? Whatever you need, here I am. I'll, I'll make you a, a deal if you come with me in the next month. And that kind of worked and blew up and... And we just looked up and realized it'd been going for a year. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's amazing to me is that you were able to build 
at least a small book of business, something that could get you started pretty early in your career. And one of the reasons you said was obviously your old firm taught you a little bit how to how this works, but you also said you were out talking, speaking. Like what other ways did you build that book kind of earlier than I think a lot of people start thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely know that I'm I'm very privileged in this way. When I when I was hired by the old firm, I was still working for the Texas Supreme Court, obviously. So I was hired for after my my term ended. And they had clients who were local clients come to them and say, Oh, we heard you hired Kristen. We're here now. Like we're her we're her clients before wow, I had actually even that. started. I, I, was want that, at the court. I, I want that job. Um, so I do think <laughs> I know, really. It was it was very beneficial. It made a made life easier in that I think I had done enough things here locally. I think it helped mm-hmm. that I was local, right? Lubbock is sort of the the biggest small town around, is really what we say in West Texas. You're very likely to run into somebody you know anytime you go to the grocery store. So coming back here, that helped. I did have a lot of people who I think sort of were waiting mm-hmm. for me to come back so that I cool. could be their lawyer. So that helped. But I just did a lot. I did all the networking thing. I joined an in of court. Um, I, you know, tried to go to all of the bar luncheons and I was just out there a lot. And thankfully, I'm enough of an extrovert. I don't mind talking to people. So I must have handed out. I, I bet I handed out a thousand business cards my first couple of months of working just because I handed them out to people who definitely didn't want them. But, you know, I only needed a few who kept them and called me and it worked. And then just building systemic clients, you know, especially in the business in the business world, folks who, you know, maybe do real estate investment and they're going to need an LLC every few months. Well, if I could do a really good job for mm. them the first time, they were going to call me the next 12 times they needed an LLC. And thankfully, those are the folks who stuck with me and had told their friends about me and, and on it went. And one of the hardest things that that I think about, and maybe this is the sort of introvert extrovert divide is like. We can put ourselves in as many rooms as possible, whether they be digital or physical or anything else. I'm curious because clearly, you know, I, there's there's obviously a little bit of a success bias, as you mentioned, but like clearly some of those people who you gave cards to ended up becoming your clients. Sure. What do you do when you walk into a room where you know maybe nobody or very few people that allows you to sort of feel not, if not at home, at least like you're going to make that time worthwhile. Like, how do you think about it when you walk into a room of people you don't really know and you want to say like, Hey, here I am. Here's who I am. That's a hard question. Um, I think I'm more of an introvert now because of COVID because Hmm. we were, you know, essentially home for a year and a half. Right. So I I, I have noticed my just complete extrovert tendencies have probably dulled maybe a bit. Um, hopefully in mostly good ways. Uh, I like to be at home a lot, but no, I mean, I, I think this, so you can't see it with the video. Obviously we can see each other and certainly your listeners won't be able to know this at all. I'm tiny. All right. I'm five, three. Um, I also at least have been told I look significantly younger than I actually am by a friend like three days ago who definitely knew how old I was and still was like, so you're like 25, <laughs> right? So thank you. First of all, to that client who thought I was 25, I'm not 25, but I do think that helps. Um, I also literally interrupt conversations. There's a conversation happening and it looks interesting or maybe I kind of recognize the person even if they don't know me. I just walk up and join it. And that's really, really hard to do, but you've just, you've got to. Most of the time, if you go grab a Dr. Pepper and stand in the corner, 
no one's going to come over to you unless they already know you. And that's not really who you're going for most of the time either. So with business networking, you've got to just be willing to do that. I will say that's probably a little bit of a gender thing. I think that's harder lots of the time for women to step into a conversation mm -hmm. that they're not originally a part of, but it's definitely something that my male colleagues and, and coworkers do. And it's not rude. It's just assumed that it's okay for them to do that. So I really had to get past the, oh, I'm an interruption. Now, this is a business networking thing. They're expecting you to do that. Um, and you probably can't just be a wallflower standing to the side. That's likely not going to get you as much business. And then it, it helps that I try really hard to stay up to date with various issues, even if I don't find them particularly interesting. You know, I'm not a huge football person, but do I stay abreast and know like who got which bowl game? I try, you know, I try so that if somebody <laughs> says something and they're upset that we got such and such a bowl, I can be like, oh yeah, we should have gotten a better bowl. Also, did you get, go ahead and get those wills done? You, just, you gotta try, always be selling, right? Always be selling. I love that. And I think it's so right. I mean, so many of the people I've talked to on the podcast, we've talked about like how not to have to network, like how to network with your friends, how to network with your community. One thing you mentioned was like going to where people are, like small business people who may not have as many people pitching to them. I love your answer of like, sometimes you're just in a big room of people and you have to like awkwardly stand next to a conversation and see how long and see how you can be a part of it. And that's that's true for lawyers. Uh, I think it's true for a lot of other things as well. I joke the only reason I'm able to have conversations with people like you who I've never met before is I spent my whole childhood as the son of a rabbi talking to people when I was like eight years old who I did not know. And I had no choice because they wanted to talk to me. And I didn't always like it, but it's mm -hmm. it's something that's a lot more comfortable as a result. And you're absolutely right. The gender dynamic is, is a huge part of it as well actually makes a ton of sense. So I mentioned I was homeschooled. My parents are also pastors, right? And so I think you're right. I think that that does kind of impact the, I know how to talk to adults, even though I am an adult now, like I've been doing that kind of for a longer period of time. So if you take, you know, I'm going to out my age now, but you know, my 30 <clears throat> uh, age person I've been sort of learning how to talk to adults for 20 years instead of just 10, right? And so learning how to talk to people. So I do a lot of estate planning and probate, right? I can't tell you as sort of odd as it sounds, how yep. many funerals that I went to with my dad when he was taking care of a funeral or something. I kind of learned a lot of that compassion in a way that I think helps me in estate planning and in probate where people feel like they can talk to me. Um, if they if I do their estate planning, their family's very likely to come back to me when that person passes away and I handle their probate as well. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Just learning how to talk to people, um, even if you don't really share their interests, yeah. being a, a nice enough person. We, we kind of have to overcome that lawyer bias where people just assume we think we're better than them and we're not interesting and we're super boring. It's kind of amazing, especially when you do business law in, in the way that I do. People just want to know you're normal. And they would, a lot of the time, not always, I mean, I'm never, Exxon's never going to hire me as their lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's fine. I don't particularly need to be Exxon's lawyer. I want to be the West Texas Farmer's lawyer who just needs something every once in a while. And a lot of the way that I can make him, that lawyer, or that farmer feel comfortable is when he walks in, I'm wearing jeans and boots. I'm not in a suit. And I can talk to him about the last Texas Tech football game and then also help him do that contract that he needs. And that's not me right. putting on a persona. That's just me, right? That's one of the reasons I started my own law firm is I wanted to be the kind of lawyer that my clients needed, not the kind of lawyer that 
dressed up in a suit and thought really highly of herself because one, I don't, and two, suits are awful. So, you know, if I could wear <laughs> jeans and boots, I would much rather wear jeans and boots. I love that. I love that. It's so funny to me. I was thinking about this recently. I was telling someone this story, which connects both of the things you just said. So that's why I'm going to share it, which is when I was a kid, my mom would often, you know, you don't plan funerals, right? And Jewish people, we do our burials very, very quickly. And so, and occasionally my dad would be away on a business trip. And so I, I always had a black suit from the age of like three forward because like I had a funeral suit just in case I had to go with my mom to a funeral. I never realized how much of an impact that might've had on my ability to start a podcast and teach and do all the things that are sort of public facing all these years later. So that's really funny. One of the things it sounds like that's a competitive advantage for you is sort of your ability to be a person in your community and get to know people. One of the challenges I imagine for having such a varied area of practice, as I said, business counseling, estate planning, probate, appellate law, is sort of keeping track of the law and all of those different skill sets. I mean, there are plenty of lawyers who work on the same like single statute and the same type of document for their entire career. And it sounds like you can't even get through a whole day without doing one kind of document and one kind of law. Like, how do you actually do that? Like, talk to me a little bit about how you balance all these different areas of practice. I think that may have been very common in times past, but I think it's becoming a little bit less common. I'm just curious how you handle it. I think you're right. I think it is probably a little less common. I will say, I think it's easier because we don't do family law and we don't do criminal law. And so being able to take those sectors out helps a lot because, of you know, estate planning and probate, those are at least the same general area of law. I can kind of stay up to date on that. And the business counseling and business law and all of that, even in a lot of ways, business litigation, that's a lot of the same area. So the buckets are a little bit bigger, maybe when you take out family and and defense or criminal work. I think that helps. The other thing kind of goes back to when we were talking about schooling, right? I love to learn. And so my CLE credits are always maxed out plus a whole lot more um, because if I find out there's a CLE podcast or a CLE, you know, video cast, or I can read a paper, I just do because I find that really interesting. Um, But you're not wrong. I mean, you really do have to stay on top of it and realize that, especially as a solo for a long time, and now just myself and David, a very small firm, you don't want to have that sort of echo chamber, right? You've got to be able to surround yourself with people. And if those people aren't in your firm, Hmm. you've got to find them. You've got to be willing to ask for help. And so I will say this, we're very fortunate in Texas. We have an extremely helpful Facebook group. It's called Texas Lawyers. And you can post questions to Facebook lawyers. Um, you, you can post them anonymously. So if you you know have something specific, perhaps you don't want opposing counsel to specifically see, you can post anonymously. And we just have incredible bar members who will step in and say, oh, no, you're looking at the wrong part of the section of the statute. Go look at Section 42 instead. Or, you know, actually, you don't. there's no reason for you to, to come up with that, you know, final order yourself. I have one of those. Shoot me your email and I'll send you the Word document. So you've just you've got to be willing to ask for help. You've got to know what you don't know. And when you realize that you've taken on something or that someone has asked you to take something on, have to really be honest with yourself because there's not a lot there's there's not that sort of partner over your head right i'm the partner now i've got to make the call whether i am the right person to help that person or not and i think more than anything the how do i keep all of that straight is i've got to be willing to turn down clients 
And it's been a really, really hard lesson for me to learn, especially starting out because you feel like you're just turning away money in a lot of ways. Like, oh, but I could probably figure that out. I'm smart. I could probably do that. And yeah, I probably could. I probably could research more and do that thing that that person needed me to do, but I wouldn't be serving them well as a lawyer. And I wouldn't really be doing as good of a job in my own firm either. And so being willing to say, no, that's not the kind of law I practice, or no, I can't handle that right now. And then having a really good list of referrals of people you're willing to say, but you know what, George, Susie, or Joe probably can tell them I told you to call and hopefully one of them can help you. That's, I think, how you keep it under control. We don't really have a goal for the law firm to grow much bigger than it is now. That's not really hmm. what we're hoping for. We want our lifestyle to kind of stay as it is, have a lot of time um, for our family and for doing the things we want to do. If we did, we would maybe bring somebody on to start handling some of those, you know, specific areas. But since we don't really want to, we have to be willing to say no. And that's yeah. a super hard thing for type A overachiever me to do. And it's a lesson I have to consistently learn. And, and every once in a while, I'll say yes to something and realize, wow, that, that took me twice as long as it probably would have taken anybody else. And I end up eating it. And it's a good lesson for me to realize I probably don't want to do that kind of law anymore. It's not good for my mental health or I can't do as good of a job as someone else could. And I need to be willing for somebody else to take that and do a better job for the client. Wow. Clearly, that's something that it sounds like you had to learn a little bit, like how to say no, when to say no, what to say no to. Are there other things that you've learned sort of sure. in the first couple of years of being a solo or now now you and David, other things you've learned that either maybe surprised you um, or just are, are ways that you want to practice law, even if they weren't how you practiced the day you stepped out as a solo? Sure. I, I think this is going to sound really cliche. I don't know how else to say this, but that the money really isn't as important. Obviously, we have to pay our mortgage. We have to pay our bills. We want to have a nice living. Of course, money is important, but it's not the most important. And sort of two years now out from starting the firm, um, two and a half now almost, looking at it and realizing, oh, you know what, I'm I'm just going to take that case pro bono because I think it's the right thing to do. Or, you know what, we're going to give that non nonprofit a break and we'll just do everything at cost for them. And some of that just comes from time, right? Some of that comes from mm -hmm. understanding the money and the administration and knowing, can I do it on that? Is it a smart thing? Yes, I can. No, I probably can't take on this massive million dollar litigation pro bono, right? Like that's probably not a good idea. Um, some of right. that just takes kind of understanding your own firm and how it's going and how the finances work. But a lot of it is that admin takes a lot of time. I, I know that that... I, I probably should have realized that a little bit more. Um, we didn't have just a ton of paralegal support at our previous firm, so we did a lot ourselves, but even the bits that they did. I am a college and grad school grad, top of my class, valedictorian, and you know, it took me like two hours to send my first certified mail letter and figure out how to send something certified mail. It was ridiculous. So just how much time those tasks are that aren't really billable to a client. You just got to figure them out. That's how you, that's how your firm works. Realizing hmm. and budgeting time for that was a really big lesson to me, but realizing if you do that well, it makes you very efficient in other areas. And so just trying to set that aside for me, it was, I needed that to feel productive. And so I had to get to a point where I realized on Tuesdays when I'm doing all of these things, I might not bill an hour of work but I'm still working and I can feel productive and it's okay because this is how the firm works. And, and now all the invoices are out, things like that. And that was more a personal shift to me to realize 
get kind of off that hamster wheel and realize the math checks out. I mean, I've talked about this on, on Twitter some. I think you and I have even interacted some with this. That the math checks out, you can actually work a lot less if you have a good hourly mm-hmm. rate and you have good clients who pay. You can work a lot less and make the same amount of money as you were in a lot of other firms. Um, you have to be willing to work hard, but there are lots and lots of times when I can bill, you know, 20 to 25 hours a week, which would have just like been completely unacceptable for understandable reasons at another law firm. And I make more than I did there. So it's a, it's a lot about just redefining for myself what productivity and what excellence looks like and picking good clients. And thankfully I have clients who pay their bills and are are really wonderful for you too. And, and are good repeat clients, it's a, it's a real blessing. Yeah. You know, that really led me to what I was going to ask you about next, which was, you know, we've talked a little bit about how everything has changed now that we can work from home. And for you, it's changed a lot because not only do you work from home, but you work for yourself, right? Like that's kind of the double whammy. How do you not let work become your whole life? Like this is something that I personally struggle with. So I ask about it a lot is like, one of the best parts about being able to do what you love and do it from anywhere is that you can do it in the times that are most convenient to you. One of the challenges is you can do it anytime. Right. So like, how do you, you like, main, yeah, right. Like I just had, I just did an interview that'll be published probably around when this one is where someone told a joke about how being a lawyer is being, having made it as a lawyer is that you get to choose what 14 hours of the day exactly. you work facetiously, but, but also there's a grain of truth. How do you separate your work life from your non-work life, real life, whatever you want to call it? Uh, On Twitter, we call that IRL in real life, right? Um, Yeah. Right. I would say I'm still probably not great at this. I, I have a really hard time knowing that clients need something and telling them, sure, I'll get to that tomorrow. Even if I know that, well, if I just sat down, I could give them, you know, my next 15 minutes and I could just make dinner a little bit later and do that. Um, So it really is a big concerted effort for me. I'm a people pleaser, which is great Mm. because it means I'm usually a pretty efficient lawyer and I hopefully do a good job for them. It's bad because most of the time clients don't need an immediate answer. And I have thankfully really good clients who have become friends who often will say something like that. Actually, no, this is fine. You can wait till Monday. It's all good, right? And so it's it's a consistent thing that I have to remind myself is just because you possibly could drop everything and do this and it would get done. If you do that every single time, it really isn't great for anybody because it raises expectations in a way that isn't really fair for me. And I can't always meet that. And then I feel like a failure if I do something the next day. Um, right. So it's it's very much a reminder that I have to tell myself to push out deadlines in a way that gives myself a little bit of time. And then, you know what? If I realize, wow, I can't sleep, I could get this thing done and I get it done early, everybody's happy instead of unhappy that I missed something by 12 hours, I'm 12 hours early. Um, but we do we 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 do work from home about 90% of the time. Um, if we're not in court or doing, you know, like a client consult, we're usually here. And so we really do try to, you know, literally physically close the laptops at, you know, 5.30, we're done kind of turn off. David's better at this than I am of putting do not disturb of emails on his phone. Um, And it is a little bit more helpful, like I said, since we don't do uh, family or criminal defense, it's usually not a 911, this is on fire emergency uh, that comes up. Usually it can wait till the next morning. And a lot of my clients, most of my clients have my cell number, um, you know, 
Sometimes emergencies do come up. I've done a few sort of bedside in the hospital wills. Those are kind of, you know, drop everything and go to the hospital and do that. But if that happens, they're probably not just nonchalantly emailing me either. And so I can kind of gauge that a little better. But right. it is an ongoing struggle for me. Um, but having a lot of time boundaries have really helped me. I've shut the laptop down, hmm. regardless of really whether you finished everything on your to-do list or not. And let's start again tomorrow is a, a thing I have to remind myself of daily. Well, I'm with you. I need to remind myself as well. So I'm glad we'll we'll hold each other accountable to that. So look, I have two last questions. So we're, we're getting sort of to the end of our time. And the first is to the person who's hearing this and saying, wow, Kristen's life sounds like a lot more like the professional life I want than the professional life I have. Or if you're in law school or law student and you're thinking that's the kind of lawyer I think I might want to ultimately become, what do you recommend to somebody who's maybe part of a, a larger law firm, whatever that means, wherever they are, and concerned about sort of taking that leap, the one that you took two years ago? What's your advice to that person? So I would say this, if you are already at a firm, do immediately, regardless of even if you think you want to leave, just period. If you're just at a firm, any firm, try to figure out how that firm works. <laughs> Um, ask questions, figure out, you know, even if you're in an incredibly large one, how's that accounting work? Um, how do invoices get to clients? Do I keep time? You know, do you keep time? And then it goes to 12 other people and then eventually ends up on an invoice somewhere? Or are you basically the one forming your invoice and figure out how that works? Do a little bit of looking um, into budgeting. Certainly, if you're even remotely considering Maybe jumping at some point, um, a really good rule of thumb just from a business rule of thumb is to have a few months of whatever those monthly expenses are going to be set aside. And you can't really do that if you don't know what those monthly expenses would be. And so if you don't have your own laptop, figuring out, you know, okay, I'm going to have to buy a printer, a laptop, figure out Genius Scan app on my phone, and do I need an office space or do I not? by the way, you do not, almost certainly. You probably don't, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can probably just get a conference room for the few times you need things, which helps a lot. But just figure out how things work. That will help you with clients because you will also be able to do a better job of explaining invoices and billing to clients. And then the other thing I would say is try to get client facing as much as possible. I mean, even if it's just obviously if you have people in, in front of you and who are your superiors, you can't just like barge into rooms. I get that. But to the extent that you have the opportunity to do something with a client, take it. You may not ever have that person as your client, but you'll get really much better at talking to clients and hearing their concerns and answering them. And then I would say, figure out what you really are the most interested in. What do you enjoy the most, even if you're doing projects for you know uh, senior associates or for your partners, which ones are you hoping that you work with and really ask for some good mentorship because maybe you'll never leave, um, but that mentorship will help you in that law firm. But if you do leave, you'll have some of those skills and you won't just be out on an island alone. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, I had Jay Harrington on the podcast maybe six months or a year ago, and he sort of writes a lot in this area. And, you know, he talks about even as a young lawyer, no matter what kind of practice you're in, you kind of have to pay yourself first. And you have to like carve out time for you to build your skills and and think those big thoughts. Because right. if you don't, no one's going to tell you to take it. Like you have to do it for yourself. And maybe it's your commute. Maybe it's, you know, half an hour every Friday morning, whatever it is. But like you got to pay yourself yeah. first and then do a great job. 
And it sounds like all of those pieces of advice are really strong. And I guess the last question, which is the same I always ask, is like, what's something that you wish you knew either when you were going to law school or in law school or early in your career that you that you know now or that that you you wish more people knew? I think I I wish I had known how supportive the bar would be um, that I <laughs> And I think I said this earlier, I'm the first lawyer in my family and and I I grew, I had some people who were very mentoring during law school, but I still didn't know a ton of people who I now realize I could have gone to immediately with help. Some of the things that were really hard, even in our old firm, probably even several years into practice, realizing I really could have probably gotten some better mentorship and some good advice if I had just asked for help. I think this is a mantra with lawyers to, you know, from the beginning to the end is there, there are people there who will help you. Um, if you're struggling with maybe mental health issues, there are programs, but there are people who want to help you. If you're just struggling with, am I, am I doing a good job as a lawyer? How do I network better? Um, I have no idea how to, you know, my partner asked me to write this thing and I can't find a form. What do I do? There's a really huge community. And, you know, I was very fortunate and, and I know you're part of really our kind of big Twitter community as well from a more kind of larger 10,000 foot view, realizing there were people who sort of cared about me, but it's been incredible, especially on my own now to reach out and sort of throw a lifeline out there and say, does anyone know this thing? And then to get eight responses back from people saying yes. And not only that, let's meet for coffee. Let's talk about this. I'll send you my file. I've got all of those forms. Don't worry about it. Here they are. And I think it would have made everything a lot less scary as a young lawyer in another firm and certainly as a young lawyer starting her own law firm if I had realized the help is out there if I just ask for it. And so it's a it's a really grateful place that I'm in now that hopefully I can now be that person who when other people ask for help, I can say, oh, I've got the forms for that. Hang on, let me email those to you. So it's, it's exciting to finally kind right. of be in that spot where... I ask a lot more questions than I think I probably answer for anyone else, but um, it's it's a great community, and I know I know we get our knocks and we deserve them sometimes as a legal community, but by and large we really care about each other. Um, and I'm I'm really fortunate to be in West Texas where we all kind of know each other, we're a little bit of a family, but just Texas and just the U.S. as a whole, um, we care about each other and we want each other to succeed. And the faster people realize that, I think the the happier and the less scared that they'll be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that 100%. And I think you said it better than than I ever could have. So thank you so much, Kristen, for being on the podcast. It's been fun getting to know you on the interwebs. But now I feel like I got to know you a lot better and hearing a little bit about your story. Hopefully, one of the great parts about interviewing people, we're not doing ages, but relatively early in their <laughs> career is hopefully someday, 10 years hence, we can we can reconnect, obviously sooner than that. But and hear sort of all about your successes. So keep up the great work and thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Y'all have a good weekend. All right. I guess it's not weekend, week. Have a good week. Be well. Thanks. Again, I am Jonah Perlin and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. 
Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 